May we open our Bibles today to the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 17. We welcome everyone here today to this Bible study. And what a marvelous and beautiful morning it is to have a Bible study following the blessing of this beautiful rain that God has rewarded His children with here in this part of the world. And we, we are so humbled to receive the rain that has fallen May Christ our Savior be praised. Our Father and our God, as we open up the Gospel of St. Luke today, we want to thank you that you would open our hearts and our minds to the Word of God, that we may grow in the knowledge and understanding of the living Word of God, divinely inspired, providentially preserved through the ages for your children. Lord God, we plead and ask you today to give us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding that we, your covenant children, may grow, may grow in the knowledge and the truth of the Word of God, which is always fresh, always new, and always true. And we plead this in the blessed, holy name of Christ. Send your Holy Spirit in great measure, we pray. Amen. We'll begin reading today as we turn in St. Luke's Gospel, and we'll begin reading at verse in the uh, 17th chapter of Luke, and we'll begin at verse 26. So if everyone could open your Bible to Luke 17, 26, we will launch this lesson. And as we do so, may I give you the title, the title as it was in the days of Noah. This will be lesson two our second lesson as it was in the days of Noah. Together we will begin at verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came, and the flood came, and destroyed them all, and destroyed them all. Likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, and they builded. But the same day that the Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone, fire and brimstone from heaven, and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And for that beautiful reading, we will praise God and give Him all praise and glory and honor. Amen. This morning, beloved, we want to look at the great truth of Noah, the flood, the ark, and what catastrophic event God delivered His covenant people in. Now we all know, beloved, that the story of the flood, the ark, and everything associated with it is one of the most beloved stories in the Bible. You will not read a, ch a children's Bible storybook without having this story in it. I don't know what it, there is about this story, but it has riveted the hearts of children, and people of all ages have queried and thought about it and they have dwelt upon this subject a lot. And not without good reason, because 
It is the longest running continuous biblical story in the Bible. 87 verses are devoted to this story from Genesis 6-1 all the way toward the ending of Genesis 9 is nothing about, nothing, uh, about anything except this great subject of Noah and the flood. Now, as we go into this lesson today, here's a question that everybody needs to think about. Why would Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, spend so much emphasis on Noah and on Lot? As it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot. Now do not be deceived by the language of the Bible when it says they married, were given in marriage, and so forth. You know what was going on in the city of Sodom. It doesn't tell you that, but you know from Genesis 19. And you know from reading the book of Genesis, chapter 6, what was going on before the, the Genesis flood. So that, there was a time of unparalleled wickedness. Unparalleled wickedness. And we are living in a generation that parallels, parallels in so many ways the days of Noah. We would almost have to be sedated and under some kind of an ascetic and be suffering from amnesia or insomnia maybe, not to know that the Genesis flood is an awesome event because God used that flood to bring a judgment of water that killed everybody on this earth and everything in the earth excepting people that were inside the ark. But that's another part of the story and we'll move on. As we move into this lesson today, beloved, I'd like to remind this congregation that the real purpose that God had in mind in giving so much emphasis to the Genesis flood, it has a very definitive purpose in God's plan. The salvation of Noah and his family inside the ark and is, is an event that serves to point out that not only was Noah and his family and everyone else inside that ark delivered from a catastrophic event, but at the same time they were delivered by water, God destroyed everything else by water. Cataclysmic events are the way God ends and punctuates history. All the Bible, significant people in the Bible that have to do with end time were what we might call catastrophists. They believed in catastrophic events, not just progressive, quiet judgment, but catastrophic judgment. When God does it, everybody's going to know it and the whole world will bow to his power that he unleashes. Now, divine intervention saved Noah. Divine intervention. What will deliver Jacob 
and his people, the covenant people, in a time of, of great trouble and tribulation, divine intervention. You and I need to trust and believe in a God that intercedes in history, that intervenes in history. Amen? Now, we mentioned last week that the Genesis flood marked the most catastrophic event in earth history after the time of the actual creation of the world. The creation was the first cataclysmic event when God organized and brought into existence the universe and the earth we live upon. The, the flood was the second great catastrophic event that occurred. So what we want to do today is turn in our Bibles and remember that as we read from Genesis, the Genesis record, as we review all the people that talked about the Genesis flood, and a lot of people overlooked the fact that Moses wrote the book of Genesis, so he was a heavyweight that wrote about the Genesis flood. Isaiah the prophet writes about it. David writes about it in the Psalms. The, the apostle Peter talks about it. He devotes one entire chapter to the story of the Genesis flood. And he relates it to the judgment of fire that will come at the end of time. The cataclysmic judgment of fire, Peter parallels that with the flood of Noah's time. He takes you all through the flood, 2 Peter chapter 3, and then he moves into the judgment of fire that will end the uh, historical time as we know it here on this earth. Now what we're going to do today, we're going to begin this lesson uh, in terms of where we're going with it to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7. Who are the Hebrews of the book of Hebrews? Now that is a loaded question. The Hebrews are the Israelites. The book of Hebrews was written especially for a certain segment of the Israelite population that were indigenous to the land of Judea at that time. And they were the people from Judah, Benjamin and Levi that had returned from the 70 year Babylonian captivity, they spoke and knew Hebrew. Now all the Greek population of Israelites, all the Greek speaking population were not familiar with the Old Testament history, but the Hebrews were. They knew the history of their heritage. So when the book of Hebrews chapter 11 begins with, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Noah is one of the greatest examples of faith that we have in the Bible. And if you look at verse 7, Hebrews 7, uh, 7 verse chapter 11, Hebrews 11, 7, by faith, read that with me. By faith, Noah being 
warned of God, things not seen as yet, moved with fear, reverence, to what happened? To prepare an ark for the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is of faith. That single verse, beloved, is one of the significant verses in the faith hall of fame. By faith Noah, by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Abraham, by faith Nathan, by faith, uh, by faith everyone here, by faith every sister that's here. We are children of faith if we are Christian. We must understand that we are children of faith. Now, if you look at Hebrews eleven seven, it doesn't tell you a lot about Noah and the flood. If all we had to guide us to, uh, on the flood was that one verse, if all we knew about Noah is what we find and read in Hebrews eleven seven, we would be very, very lacking in very much knowledge and information. We know that, first of all, that tells us that Noah was a man of faith. He was a giant among Old Testament characters as to the exercising of faith. Now, what kind of faith did Noah have? James 2.17 says, Even as faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Faith without works is what? Dead. Dead. Noah had what we'll call actionable faith. If you're a person of faith, you demonstrate faith by how you live, how you manage your life, how you navigate life, and everything about you will be an expression of your faith. It's very significant. Now we know that Abraham was a man of faith. Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed in God, and God counted it unto him for righteousness. Abraham was declared righteous before he ever did really anything. Why was he declared righteous? Because he believed. Now later, Abraham was demonstrating actionable faith to convince anyone that he was not just a person who claimed to have faith, but he was really a person who lived by faith. The Bible says three times, the just shall live by faith. That is found three times in the Bible. Habakkuk, Romans, and the book of Hebrews. So it's very important that we understand that all the Old Testament men and women were people of faith, just as New Covenant, New Testament people will be the same. Now their faith is not based upon the law, not based upon ceremony, not based upon their experience in life, and that is true for all of us. Our faith is not built from 
anything other than what we believe about God and our willingness to trust Him for all the promises that He has made to us, His children. I wasn't present when the Virgin Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel to tell her the wonderful story that she would become the mother of the incarnate God. I was not there, neither was you, but we believe it. I've never seen Mary, but I know Mary lived. And all of us do with faith. We know that young lady lived on this earth at one time and became the wonderful uh, vessel that God used to bring forth the incarnate Christ that we love. So now, when we look then at the Old Testament, we, we need to remember that they were not unlike the New Testament people in that they believed God and it was counted unto them for righteousness. So they did not earn their faith. It was not something they earned by any means. They believed God and it was counted to them for righteousness. If you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that is where you are uh, resting your salvation. It's not on how you're going to behave. Now, if you're truly saved, if you truly have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, your faith is going to be actionable. You are going to live your life. Your lifestyle will measure your faith. If the lifestyle does not measure the faith, something is wrong. Your faith is not real faith. Faith has to be demonstrable to be actionable and in obedience to God's world and work. So that's very important. Now, what else does Hebrew eleven seven not tell us? It does not tell us when it says that Noah moved with fear of God and he went to, on to prepare an ark, it doesn't tell us why that he wanted Noah to prepare an ark. It doesn't tell us what the ark really is. It doesn't use the word flood. The water is not there. So the, it, there's a lot of mystery in that one single verse. And that's the reason that Moses took 87 verses to elaborate on one verse. Hebrews 11:7 is one of the most condensed verses in the Bible. It condenses 87 verses into one. Isn't that amazing? Would to God that we all could do that as writers, condense 87 verses of Bible truth into one simple verse. Now that is in itself rather significant. So the, the verse itself tells us nothing about that in terms of detail. So in order to do that, we've got to go back to Genesis. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to return now to the book of Genesis. And the reason that we need to look at Genesis is because... Genesis is the backstory of Peter's third chapter in his second epistle. Peter used the Genesis flood as a text 
to talk about the coming judgment of fire. Now here's the, the bottom line, church, and this I pray you will, I, even if you, whatever your belief system is about the flood, this is what you got to understand. Whatever the Genesis flood is, however that flood is defined by you, is going to tell us how you're going to look at the end of history. Because the cataclysmic, catastrophic event of the judgment by fire, when Peter says that the earth will be melted by fire and everything in it, that God does not save will be destroyed. That is a massive judgment, catastrophic judgment. And until recent times, that kind of destruction was hard to understand. But we now know that it's possible for the earth to be incinerated by the power that could be unleashed. God can do whatever he wants to do. How did he destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? God rained fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. That was atomic energy that God turned loose from heaven. And he destroyed every living thing in Sodom excepting for Lot and those that the angels drug along with Lot out of that wicked city. So what we're going to do now, we're going to look at the Genesis flood, which was the single greatest judgment of God that ever fell on earth. Now there's a world of people that don't like to talk about judgment. In fact, judgment is not a very frequent topic in most pulpits in modern America today. But the Bible says this in Hebrews 9, 27, that as it was appointed unto men, it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the the judgment. When you die, hear this, the first breath you take in eternity will be a day of your judgment. Because God is going to judge you as to where your soul is going to be traveling. That will be the first judgment. If you are redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb... You have no worries. You've got a, a great future. And by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we know our salvation is secure. Now, remember this, beloved. Sodom and Gomorrah is a perfect example of God's wrath unleashed against sin. Can you say amen to that? If you read Genesis 19. It's an amazing story. The city of Nineveh in 612 BC was utterly destroyed by a fire that roared through that wicked city and it was predicted by a prophet in your Old Testament to occur. There's a plague that fell upon 24,000 Israelites. Hello? 24,000 Israelites died in a plague in Numbers 25. Why did they die? It's called mesogenation, rice mixing. Pestilence ended the life of 70,000 Israelites in the days of, 
of uh, King David. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 24. Now, the Genesis flood that is detailed for us by Moses is one of the greatest cataclysmic events in all of history. And God used this flood to inspire the apostle Peter to warn his people of this. This is what Peter said in 2 Peter 3 verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. It's going to be a time of great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So whatever the flood was in the time of Noah, you say, well, it must have been a regional flood. Well, is the judgment regional? I don't think so. The judgment of a baptism of water will be followed by the earth and its baptism of fire. Now, Peter goes on to say something remarkable. In verse 11 and 12 of 2 Peter 3, he says this, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, speaking of the earth, what manner of pe persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Now with those thoughts in mind, we're ready to turn to Genesis chapter number 6. And as we turn to Genesis chapter number 6, we're going to be looking now at some very significant words that are recorded by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and given to Moses, the great servant of God. So we will be in Genesis chapter number 6 now. If you have your Bibles open there, we will look now at Genesis chapter number 6. What we need to do now, as we open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter number 6, there are five events unfolding that precipitated the flood. Now, some people would make a long, lengthy list, but I think that you could, if you choose to do so, summarize all the precipitating events of that time in history in five succinct statements. So look at them. Let's look at number one. We're looking at five events that brought on the flood. Number one was the population explosion of the non-white world. Men began to multiply on the face of the earth. And then as time went on, it was the diminishing of the white Caucasian stock of Adam and Eve. So that's number one. It had to do with the population of the earth and the demographics of how that population uh, were made up racially. Number two is the explosion and obsession with sexual perversion and depravity. Sexual obsession and, depra and depra 
depravity, perversion. I have a little book in the bookstore that is titled Godly Relationships Before and After Marriage. Emphasize the word after marriage. As I was reviewing the words of this book, I decided to read something from it and then I was checked because I thought, you know, I can't read that before a co-ed congregation made up of men and women. I would be too embarrassed. But it's something that every single person and every married person needs to know about the word perversion in marriage. And I want to sound this warning before this congregation that the obsession of perversion in our culture today has become so absolutely radically infected into this culture that it has reached into Christians up and down the land. So now I will make a very bold statement and say, some of the most well-behaved people you probably know behind closed doors might be into perversion. Now there's a, 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 a catastrophic judgment that's going to be visited upon this earth. And God, is God knows who is keeping themselves respectable before Him. So that is a warning, and I challenge anybody to come and find this book and then read it. It's in the bookstore. You can read it in probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes at the most. So number three is the exponential increase in gross wickedness and vile lifestyle. The earth became so wicked and so vile that every imagination of man's mind was evil only continually. And I have come to the conclusion that if you want to see that in action, turn on CNN. Amen. Then the number four event was the explosion of violence and random acts of mass murder. The sanctity of life was lost. All sanctity of life was gone at the time of the Genesis flood. Do you know that America now, there are millions of people that believe there's no big problem in murdering a full-term baby. It hasn't been very long ago that a practicing doctor who had admitted to taking the life of up to 6,000 full-term babies was an usher in a church in Kansas City, Kansas, I believe. It was in, he was from Wichita, Dr. Killer. That was his nickname. You know that he ended up 
in a way that I think was marvelous, but I'm not, I'm not going to go into that in detail because I think that this lesson would be pulled down. But you know about that. But I, what I'm saying, church, is that violence, you cannot possibly keep up with the murders that's going on in this country today. There's no way in the world you can do it. And it didn't just happen yesterday. It's been unfolding. It's been growing and proliferating exponentially for a long time. But it's becoming serious. You dare not be in Kansas City now without being armed. You cannot go through many urban places of America today and be safe. A 20-year-old mother was rolling, strolling her little child down the sidewalk in New York just a few hours ago. And somebody just drove by and shot her and killed her. Random violence. What is precipitating the unhinging of the minds of this generation. Well, we know that God has been rejected. The Bible has been rejected. The Ten Commandments have been nailed to a cross. We have lost God in this country and all moral standards are gone. But in such a culture, the perversion of that culture can reach deep, deep down into the heart of people and not even know it. They don't, they, they're not aware of it. And then we have, number five, the collapse of all biblical morality. We lose gender distinction. We lose the definition of biblical marriage, of gender, of the family, all the things that God gave us to build a civilized, ordered world, we're losing. And as we lose God's order, we descend into chaos and disorder. Now the Bible says that in Genesis 6, 5, God saw that the wickedness, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Some of the things that we're hearing that are coming over the radio and television and, and various other plat social media platforms, it's, it's, it's become vile and vulgar. The Bible says that it, repented, that it repented the Lord Jehovah that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. Now, what does it take to grieve God in his heart? How do you, how can you be grieved for something? You can empathize with the word grieved, I think. God says, I will destroy from the face of the earth both man and beast, the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Now, these are compelling words. When the Bible says it grieved God in his heart, there's an expression, there's a word that is used to describe how a human emotion is felt by God when it says God's heart was grieved. 
Uh, we've, God is, uh, the being of God is, is incomprehensible. So how do we understand the heart of God is grieved? Because we know that's a human emotion to suffer and be grieved about something. That is called anthropomorphic. That's the word that is used to describe how a human emotion is viewed by uncreated God. It's anthropomorphic. God was so grieved that he simply decided that he would destroy it all. So Genesis 6, 8, and 9 declares, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord God. And I ask the question today, Will God find, will we find favor, will we find favor in the eyes of our God when all hell breaks loose in judgment? Will we find favor, grace, the unmerited favor of God upon ill-deserving sinners is the definition of grace. So the idea that we need, need to look at here, beloved, is that God looked at the wickedness of men. And notice what God said in verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of of the Lord Jehovah. Now, I am told that you should never begin a sentence with a conjunctive like but. But God did. And he did that for a reason. Because God is saying, look, this earth has grown very, very wicked, but I've shown favor upon Noah and I have put him under the banner of grace. Hallelujah. Unmerited favor of God. Let's look at Genesis 6, 9. And turn there with me if you will. Just look down at Genesis 6, 9. It's really, really very important. So let's look at it. The Bible says these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man. Perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Now you and I. Sitting here today, beloved, would be very foolish indeed if we did not measure our lives, the life we're living right here, right now, by the parallel life of Noah. This is, this is how God wants us to be and live. And I'm in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man. Perfect. He was a just man, perfect in his generation, and walked with God. Now, what does it mean when it says Noah was a just man? How did Noah become just, just or justified? Noah was not justified or made just because of his works. He, he obviously believed and he obeyed God, but that's not why God gave him the expression of being a just man. Noah was obedient to the law for sure, but he was not justified by the law, not justified by any good deeds 
or by any ceremonial cleaning, cleansing. Noah was declared just because he had confessed his sin with a humble heart and he had made things right with God. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness and that's why he was just. And that's why you and I are just today. If we depended on our good works, if we depended on anything other than the providence of God's grace, God's sovereignty for our salvation, we are in trouble because we can never be good enough for God. No one, no human can ever be good enough for God. That is why Jesus Christ came to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. So Noah confessed his sin. He made the appropriate sacrifices for that sin. And God imputed his own righteousness unto Noah. Noah's righteousness came through God's grace. It was imputed unto him. So that's something that we need to, to think about. Noah was not a self-justified man. No one in this congregation can be self-justified and believe that you are a Christian. Now, it says that Noah was perfect in his generations. Noah had not corrupted his genetic pedigree. Noah was the tenth man in the direct scent from Adam and Eve. Noah was responsible for the continuing pedigreed seed through which the Messiah would come. Think about it. In the loins of Noah was the seed that would continue the messianic line that would produce David, that would eventually produce Joseph and bring forward the incarnate Christ of the seed of Abraham. Now, the word perfect here and the word generations is important. The word perfect is simply saying that Noah had inherited a bloodline that was undiluted and undefiled, a bloodline that had not been diluted or defiled all the way back to Adam and Eve, 10 generations. So that's very important. The word generations is from the Hebrew root word tolida and means descent, lineage, or family history. Noah had preserved his racial integrity as an Adamite, and he had passed this heritage of blood on to Noah, to his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, you've got to remember this, church. Noah was perfect in his bloodline. The woman he married was genetically of his own DNA. The three sons that they became the parent of are all Caucasian sons. The church world has completely destroyed that, that fundamental truth. It has been totally, totally corrupted. And then finally, Noah walked with God. What does that mean? 
Now, there are two men in the Bible, the Old Testament, that were antediluvians before the flood. And both of these men were said, it is said of them that they walked with God. So who was the first man that the Bible says walked with God? That was, that says expressly those words, he walked with God. Enoch. Enoch walked with God. It also says that Noah walked with God. This is simply saying that Noah was in good, wholesome communion with God. So is it a fair question to ask, are we? Are we in good communion with God? When we kneel to pray, do we feel confident that our prayer is being received up into the heavens where our high priest, Jesus Christ, is sitting? Are we in communion with God? That's the question. Now, how many of you prayed for rain? I see a lot of hands here. Did God answer your prayers? You know, it's an amazing thing, people. If you keep a journal of all the times that you need something that you pray for, you might be surprised how long that list will grow. The, we need to learn that prayer is how, it's just one of the ways we walk with God. We talk with God. We know God when we are willing to communicate with Him in prayer. Now, Genesis 6, verse 13, look there will be the first time that God actually tells Noah what he's about to do. Noah, this is what I'm about to do. Get ready. And God said unto Noah, verse 13, Genesis 6, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So what happened here? God found the earth to become so wicked it was irredeemable. There was no possibility of recovery. There was no possibility for repentance left. The wickedness had reached a level of that time in history that meant people were irredeemable. So God said, I'm going to destroy them with the earth. The end of all flesh. The end of all flesh could mean that the, the flesh had corrupted itself. We're, on our, we're well on the way uh, on that journey in America today. Genesis 6.14 reveals God's master plan to Noah on how he's going to save him. Verse 14, make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Now, the Hebrew root word for the word ark is simply box. God told Noah to build a floating box. <laughs> the word ark is box. Now, the only time the word ark in this sense appears again in the Bible is in Exodus 2 verse 3, when Jochebed, the mother of Moses, built an ark of bulrushes and put baby Moses inside of that little tiny box or the ark, called it Ark of Bulrushes, and set it on the Nile River 
in faith, in faith, not knowing what was going to happen to baby Moses. Now, isn't it amazing that God saved Moses from an ark of bulrushes so that Moses could be the deliverer of a whole body, a nation of people called Israel? Isn't it amazing that Noah was told to build a box, an ark, through that ark he would save his himself and all of his family, preserve the messianic lineage through which Jesus is going to come. God saved Noah in a floating box so that Noah could preserve seed to repopulate the world. God is great. How big is God? Big enough. Big enough to create the universe and he's big enough to do anything that he chooses to do. So God built a super box. A floating super box to save Noah. And that is pretty amazing. Now, into this box, God is going to put Noah, three sons, their wives, and God is going to take representatives. Now, we're going to find this out. God is going to take representatives from all the separate and distinct races that are pure, still undefiled before him. Going to put them in the ark, and when the ark when that flood is ready to be ended, all those life forms are going to leave the ark and repopulate the earth. So what does Genesis verse 15 say in chapter 6? Remember Hebrews eleven seven is very brief. Now we're really learning the details. Verse 15, and this is the fashion which thou shalt make it, make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. The breadth of it 50 cubits and the height of it 30 cubits. So the ark was 300 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet in height. The ark was not designed for speed. It was not powered by huge engines. It had no rudder. It was not even meant for excessive travel. The dimensions of the ark were built on a ratio of six to one, length versus width. That ratio became the gold standard for shipbuilding in the world. The ark was built for stability. God designed that ark to survive a canopy of water that's going to fall from heaven. He's going to build an ark that will be stable when the great fountains of the deep are broken up and volcanoes, earthquakes, tidal waves, and every other act of nature will turn this world into a raging giant inferno and that ark is going to have to stay stabilized. God designed the ark for stability. And every ship thereafter followed this pattern. Now, I will mention this because I think it's important. 
The Bible tells us that the, the heavens were open. It did more than rain. The heavens were open because something fell out of heaven. It's called water. And that water was oceans of water. The ratio of land to water before the, before the flood is just the reverse of what it is today. Just reverse the order of ratio of water to, to earth. Now, beloved, do you know that the ark was the largest vessel for water ever constructed from the time of Noah until the early 1800s? It was the greatest architectural marvel of engineering in ancient history. Now that changed when they began building ships with iron. The largest ship built after the ark was launched by the P&O line. It was named the Himalayan. It was 240 feet long, built by the British, still not as long as the ark. Later in 1858, the British built what is called the Great Eastern, which was almost 700 feet long. So it was middle and later 1800s before any ship equaled the size of the ark. When iron began to be used for construction of the ark. Now the ratio of shipbuilding remains six to one, length to width. Because God knew how to create stability on water. And that pattern was still followed with the, the, by the British. Kudos to Ephraim. The ark, the ark was designed to survive a catastrophic event. People, what you have to do is enlarge your mind when you're looking at Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Enlarge your mind. Who's the only living witness to the flood? God. God. Who are you going to believe? Human opinion or are you going to believe God? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stand in the shoes of Joshua for a minute and say, as for me and my lonely house, we will, believe, we will serve the Lord God. I can say that with confidence, I think. God help me. Now, the earth, the ark, the ark, it was estimated to have tonnage of 1,415 tons. It had 100,000 cubic feet. And it was, the volume of the ark was 1.5 million cubic feet. It was a massive ship. It's estimated to have the capacity to hold 522 railroad cars filled with animals of any kind. Now, they say that a, a boxcar can hold 240 sheep. A sheep is average size for animals. If you had 522 boxcars, each one holding 240 sheep, you could haul 125,000 sheep. Just for the doubting Thomases about how Noah packed everything aboard the ark. 
Now the ark was three stories. So you have three total separate divisions in that huge monstrous ark. So let's go to verse 16. Winding down here real quickly, let's go. A window, I'm in verse 16, Genesis chapter number 6. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in the cubit shalt thou finish it. Above and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third story shalt thou make it. The sides of the window is unknown, but the window was for light. Now, under the roof of the ark, where the side met the roof, there was an opening all the way around the ark, and it was intercepted only by beams, so that, that uh, separate division there allowed light and much needed ventilation for a floating barn full of animals, we need ventilation. So God made a masterful way to ventilate that ship and, uh, and provide additional light as well. So the, the architectural design of the ark is an amazing feat that only God himself could design, but Noah must have had an enormous engineering mind or maybe Shem or Ham or Japheth or somebody did. And they may have consulted every good mind they could find. Now the opening in between the beams, that little opening all the way around near the top, right under the ark, where the overhang of the roof would keep the rain out, provided ventilation and light. Now Noah's getting ready to take a 371 day cruise. <laughs> now gonna be a, a simple little cruise. Gonna be on that water for 370 or 71 days. And that will be a very long time to be on the water when you cannot go outside and let your feet touch the ground. There will be no stateroom, no big buffet dinners, no board porters, no butlers, no dining out, no frills of any kind, no dancing. What are you going to do aboard the ark? Good question. How much planning did Noah have to do? Do you know that Noah had 120 years? 120 years to build the ark. That's a long time, but this is a big, this is a massive project. This is huge. This is the largest engineering project ever attempted in earth history. So the ark was like a large floating barn full of animals of every kind. They had plenty of people on board to help because they're going to take life forms of all creation. Now, as we bring this lesson to closure, church, do you know that the ark, by the church fathers, church fathers, by those who have gone before us, have used the ark to parallel the theology of the Bible. How many stories in the ark? 
Here's the triune nature of God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Only one door into the ark. John 10, 9 says that Jesus is the only door. I am the door of the sheep. And anyone else is a thief and a robber. One door into the kingdom of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. One window for light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The choice of Noah, God's choice of Noah before the foundation of the world, emphasizes election. The pitch within and without that covered the ark, that saved the, the ark from sinking, drowning with water coming in, was pitch typified by the blood of Jesus, which covers us, saves us, as it did at Passover so long ago. And finally, the door, when it was closed, sealed everyone inside, typifying, prefiguring the Holy Spirit, which seals us, according to God's Word. And so now, beloved, God tells Noah, yes, I'm getting ready to close this, just hold on. Verse 17, all flesh, now you've got to look at this. All flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. That's what God said. So how many living things were under heaven? All of them. How many of them died? All of them will be drowned, crushed, or killed except those inside the ark. That's what God says. Now, human opinion will argue with God. Human opinion will find a, a dozen reasons, a hundred reasons why God must be wrong. Genesis 7, 23 says, however, look at Genesis 7, 23, and every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. How about that for destruction? How many living things that had life upon the earth or were dependent on the earth to live were destroyed? Everything that existed upon the face of the earth or depended upon the earth for life was destroyed except those inside the ark. That's what God said. Now the flood covered all the earth to a depth sufficient to cover the highest mountains, peaks on earth. What does the Bible say? Look at Genesis 7, 19 and 20. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. So how much of the earth was under heaven? All of it. How much of the earth did God flood? All of it. How many hills and mountains were under heaven? All of them. 15 cubits. One cubit equals 18 inches. Upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. The mountains were covered. God said it. Mount Ararat, where the ark, where the ark came to rest, is estimated to be 17,000 feet altitude. And Mount Ararat has marine life at the top of it. 
it was underwater. Now the fossils, fossils of ocean life forms can be found all over the mountain peaks of the world. There's not a doubt that, so, that some catastrophic event of water covered this earth. Now the flood was long and lengthy. 370 days, 371 days is a long time for water to cover the earth. The Grand Canyon has many examples of marine life embedded into the sedimentary layers. Did you know, now church listen, I'm not, I'm not ex exaggerating a bit, a mastodon has been found buried in the tundra of Siberia in Russia, in frozen tundra, when it was uncovered and dug up and they exposed the contents of the stomach, it had or contained undigested tropical vegetation. Tropical vegetation in Siberia. It showed that something catastrophic instantaneously killed that huge hairy creature. And that's what happens in catastrophic judgment. It comes quickly and thoroughly by the sovereign hand of God. Now we know that the earth was just like a giant greenhouse. A great giant worldwide greenhouse where the earth was watered with a mist before the flood came because it had never rained no rain. Noah had never seen rain. But God told him it was going to start raining. And by faith, Noah believed God. That was an act of faith. Well, be, beloved, verse 18 is the first time the word covenant appears in the Bible. We're getting very close to the end of this chapter. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife, and thy wife's sons with thee. Noah is told now that he and all of his family are to go inside the ark. Judgment is about to fall. Rain is coming. What? 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 Rain? Rain is going to fall. It never rained before in history. Build an ark. Build a boat. What for? I have never, Noah must have thought, I've never needed a boat. Sorry, Noah, but you're going to need one. Rain, boat, ark. These are all a challenge. To all the people Noah preached to, and they laughed at him. They scorned him. They ridiculed this man. For 120 years, Noah subjected himself to the scoffers. Now, verse 19, we're coming toward the end. Hold on. And of every living thing of all flesh. Did you get that? Every living thing thing of all flesh. Two of every sort. Would that include the representatives of the other races? Pure and undefiled representatives. Of course it did. 
two of every sort of all flesh. Beloved, you can't argue with what God is saying. To keep them alive with thee, they shall be male and female. God knew the distinction between male and female, something our United States Supreme Court justice that we just seated last week doesn't know. She could not define what a woman was. But they're going to they're going to ordain her to the Supreme Court anyway. God help us is right. Two of every living thing is to be preserved aboard the ark. Every living thing includes male and female of every species, including all the existing separate distinct races upon the earth. No species of life was exempt or excluded that was not represented on the ark. You will notice that in Genesis 17, correction, Genesis 7 verse 2, that Noah was instructed to bring seven pairs of all the clean animals aboard. Seven of every pair of male and female, and they were gonna be used for sacrificial offerings, of course. Verse 20, Genesis 6, 20, of fowls after their kind, cattle after their kind, every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee and keep them alive. So now, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. How, is, how in the world is Noah gonna collect all these creatures? Is he gonna go on repeated safaris? Is Noah gonna have to travel to all the corners of the earth to gather all these creatures together? No. How are they going to get in the ark? God's going to compel them to come into the ark. Oh, really? Yep. God is going to bring, by their instinct, animals have instinctive knowledge of when nature is ready to do something serious. And so now, every sort of creature shall come unto thee. So Noah didn't have to go anywhere. He stayed right where he was planted. Didn't move anywhere and those animals came to him. Verse 21. Take thou unto thee all of all food that is eaten. Thou shalt gather it to thee and it shall be food for thee and for them. All sorts of the type of food that Noah and his family and the other life aboard the ark was going to need. They had 120 years to figure it out, and they took aboard that ark food store for 40 days and 40 nights. They knew that a flood of that nature would last and cover the earth a lot longer than 40 days. So they, those people knew that they were in for a long, long cruise. So they took enough food to last them. You can be sure of that. So folks, what do we conclude about part two of it as it was in the days of Noah? Well, what do we conclude with, church, is that we're going to have to be people of faith. There is nothing that you can leave this house with today that will serve you better than to remember that we must become children of faith. Amen. 
Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. The evidence of things hoped for. The substance of things hoped for. And the evidence has not yet appeared. So, church, listen. We have not lived in a kingdom. But we believe a kingdom is coming. We have not seen the king of glory in his own person. But we believe the king of glory is coming. There's a whole world of things we believe by faith. And when we walk out of this sanctuary today, we are going to live with actionable faith. We're going to live our lives. Our lifestyle, our lifestyle must match our faith. We cannot live our lives one way and say we believe another way. The two have to come together. Is that right? Your faith matches your lifestyle. So you're, you're going to walk, you're going to be children of faith. Shall we be standing? Children of faith, let's stand. God be praised.